Today on Peace Talks Radio, how some classical music composers have presented their hope for peace in their work throughout the centuries. I found that it was those very same works which usually tended to take the concept of war and turn it upside down to expose it as something undesirable and then frame that in the end with a quest or a search for peace. Composer, performer, and music historian Jane Ellen shares some compelling stories of how some of these important works were inspired and developed. In an interview he gave, he said, my thinking was good versus evil. The devil's music is for the violin, and the cello is for the voice of God. How do violinists feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) The Peace Message in Classical Music, today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflicts we have with others in our families, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today we spend our entire program in the company of musician and music historian Jane Ellen. Jane is a composer, performer, and recording artist herself with four CDs and over 50 print publications to her credit. She's also a popular lecturer who likes to research and present programs on favorite topics, which is why we here at Peace Talks Radio commissioned her, if you will, to think about the history of classical music and find some examples of composers throughout history being inspired by a desire for peace. Jane told me in our studios that it was a little challenging to find classical compositions about peace per se, easier to find works about war, but, says Jane, I found that it was those very same works which usually tended to take the concept of war and turn it upside down to expose it as something undesirable and then frame that in the end with a quest or a search for peace. Well, this is true in art and uh, literature as well, Mm -hmm. I think. Where did you go next then? Well, I started in what I thought would be the obvious place with Beethoven. Most people are aware that his third symphony was originally dedicated to Napoleon Bonaparte, but at the point where Bonaparte declared himself an emperor, basically a dictator, Beethoven lost all emotion or admiration for the man. He was very angry with Napoleon, and he tore up the dedicatory page, retitled the symphony, the Eroica, or the Heroic Symphony. Moving from that, I thought of the Ninth Symphony, which most people tend to think of um, the, the Fourth Movement in particular, thinking of the Fourth Movement as the Ode to Joy, Song of Joy, Song of Peace, And while I found that it certainly has humanistic elements in framing Schiller's poem, talking about men, women and and men working together as brothers and sisters for brotherhood, for peace, that it didn't really speak to me as being anything more than cliché because of how many times it's been quoted and overused as a song for peace. But then I found that at the same time he was working on the Ninth Symphony, he was actually working on his last great mass. They call it the Misa Solemnis, or the Solemn Mass. It's set to the Catholic Mass, the ordinary of the Mass, as so many great classical works are. And in this, 
at the very end where the prayer enters, Dona nobis pacem, or grant us peace, you find that the movement is unsettling. Some critics have accused him of failing to finish the work properly, saying that it feels unfinished. But going to the original score, I found that Beethoven had written some notations in the vernacular in German, and in one place in particular, he had notated that this was a prayer for inner and outer peace. And as the Doronobis Pacham is explored by the soloists and the choir and the orchestra, there are these unsettling moments, and everything seems to begin to fall apart. My interpretation is that he was beginning to reflect the chaos of humanity, and we're saying, well, we want peace, but we're spending our time in war, trying to find some sort of justification for this and to figure out the end of the piece, I finally turned to Robert Shaw, the great choral conductor, and I found an interview where he was quoted as saying, there is no answer to those who feel the mass is unfinished, other than to say that the extraordinary variety and repetition of the prayers for peace from simple childlike songs to shouts of despair and frustration add up to the truth as Beethoven saw it. Shaw continues saying, there's no assurance, not even for God himself, that peace will come as a quiet end. He finished the interview by saying, war may continue to exist, we will continue to sing. And I think he has a grasp on this idea that Beethoven, in a sense, left the piece unfulfilled without a satisfying conclusion because he didn't feel that there was a conclusion to the great prayer for peace in his time. And this was in 1824. Mm -hmm. So you selected one excerpt from this uh, moment in uh, Beethoven's work. Uh, call our listeners' attention to some of the things they can keep their ears out for here in this excerpt. Well, I found this interesting because we're finishing the Lamb of God section just before he goes into the great peace prayer. And as you listen to the choir, first you hear the sound of martial or military drums entering, and then a very unsettling sound of brass indicating warfare. But it is unexpected to be at the end of a great sacred work, expecting the choir to sing about peace and to now be interrupted by the sounds of war. Okay. 
An excerpt from Dona Nobis Pacem from the Miso Solemnus, Nashville Symphony under the direction of Kenneth Skirmerhorn. 
Jane Ellen is our guest. Next on your list. I think I'd like to move forward in time to yet another Dona Nobis Pacem, but it's by way of yet another symphony. I'd like to look at the composer Rafe von Williams, who was born in the latter part of the 19th century and would actually see service in World War I. He was 41 at the start of the war, yet like many people, felt that he needed to volunteer his service, and he did serve as a stretcher bearer in the ambulance corps. It was a difficult time for him because he saw many personal friends die, as well as other composers and musicians that he knew who were in his regiment or in other parts of the military. And many people think that he came away from it changed as deeply as the author Tolkien did after his service in World War I, where that may have led directly to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Von Williams' experience first led to something with a deceptive title. It would become his third symphony, but when it first came out, it was called the Pastoral Symphony. This is not Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. This is something completely different. And although it's never been one of Von Williams' more popular works, it has now become understood to be a quietly subtle and elegant elegy for those who died in World War I. The Pastoral Symphony was premiered in 1922, just a few years after the war ended. In 1936, the world would begin to see the inevitability of yet another great war, and it's at this time that Von Williams wrote his famous Dona Nobis Pacem. As England faced the threat of war, Von Williams turned, I think surprisingly, to the poetry of an American poet, Walt Whitman, who also worked as a volunteer in the medical corps during the American Civil War, and he chose selections from Walt Whitman's poetry to be woven into his masterpiece. The excerpt that I thought was the most interesting is the third movement of the Dona Nobis Pacem. We begin with an Agnus Dei taken with the Latin text from the Roman Catholic Mass, and then the first Whitman poem is called Beat, Beat, Drums, but the third poem is stark and leaves us wondering where the ultimate direction of the work will take us. It uses the entire poem by Whitman, and just listening to the first few lines takes us to another place emotionally. The first lines in Whitman's poem are as follows. Word over all, beautiful as the sky, beautiful that war and all its deeds of carnage must in time be utterly lost, that the hands of the sisters death and night incessantly softly wash again and ever again this soiled world.
The Dono Nobis Pachum of Rayfon Williams, composed in 1936, we hear a performance from the London Philharmonic with Sir Adrian Bolt uh, conducting. Music historian Jane Ellen is our guest, and we'll have more. The topic, Peace Themes and Classical Music, on Peace Talks Radio. Back with more after this.
This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, with all of our episodes going back to 2003, available for you to hear online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, and our guest this time is music historian and composer Jane Ellen, who's guiding us through the centuries of classical music and sharing some stories of composers who, in reacting to war, often produced music that powerfully suggested a longing for peace in humankind. Jane mentioned that a war was building when Rafe Vaughn Williams composed the work we heard right before the break. That, of course, was World War II, and we move ahead now to a composer who was actually a conscientious objector during World War II. Jane? Benjamin Britten was no stranger to works about peace. In fact, in 1937, he'd written a work called The Pacifist March. Hmm. He and his partner, Peter Pears, were in the United States as the war began to escalate, and when they returned to the United Kingdom in 1942, their ship was actually searched and some of Britain's scores seized as possible material from spies or enemy agents. It was a ridiculous situation, and yet it was tragic because Britain would lose scores that he would never be able to recreate. What were Benjamin Britten's more direct influences then for the war requiem? I think part of it must have begun when he returned home and attempted to register as a conscientious objector and was turned down initially. He had to file an appeal before his status as a CO was recognized. Of course, then he suffered through the blitz and the privations of war, which everyone in his homeland were going through clear to the end of the war. In the late 50s, they were still trying to rebuild some of the monuments in England. And as they worked on Coventry Cathedral, which had been nearly completely destroyed during the Blitz, they decided they would like to commission a work which would commemorate the reconstruction and the rebuilding of the cathedral. The rebuilding was unique in the sense that they incorporated part of the ruins into the new construction so that you had medieval and 20th century church combined. When Benjamin Britten received the commission, it gave him complete freedom to choose anything at all that he wanted, and he knew immediately he wanted to frame it within the reference of the Requiem Mass. And I find this trend is used so often by composers to make political statements within the context of the Mass. I don't think that that has anything to do with religion so much as it has something to do with the fact that Christian music was the foundation of Western music in so many ways. And so the first great works were sponsored by the church, and as it entered the repertoire, it became a comfortable place for composers to turn anytime they want to make a statement. Britain would eventually dedicate the work to four wartime friends, three of whom had been lost during the war. The fourth had survived the war, but then committed suicide shortly before he was due to be married. Many people thought that when Britain began to compose the War Requiem, it would be jingoistic or nationalistic, if you will. It would be a glorification of Britain and whatever was left of her empire, a justification of war. But instead, it had everything to do with his anti-war convictions. He set the piece up so that it would have three soloists, and he wanted them to be specifically of different nationalities. He wrote for a German for a Russian, and for an Englishman. When Britain wrote the dedication, he made it very clear that it was not simply in honor of the reconstruction of this cathedral, 
but that it was in memory of all those from every nation who had lost their lives during the war, making it truly an anti-war statement. I think it's curious that within the context of the Mass, he chose to insert texts by a World War I poet named Wilfred Owen. Owen was famous for writing poetry during the war, having been injured, returned to action, and then being killed only a week before the armistice was signed. In one of Owen's letters, he wrote, I'm not concerned with poetry. My subject is war and the pity of war. The poetry is in the pity. All a poet can do today is warn, and that is why true poets must be truthful. So this is the excerpt that you've chosen for us, the poem by Wilfred Owen. Yes. Benjamin Britten conducting the London Symphony Orchestra with Peter Piers. Oft passing bells for these who die and Only the monsters and war of the guns. Only the stuttering rifles wrapped in the battle can cut about hasty horizons. No mockeries for them from prayers or bells. Nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells. And bugles calling for them from sad
Benjamin Britten conducting the London Symphony Orchestra with Peter Piers as the soloist. Britten's choice of an English text to alternate with the familiar Latin text of the Mass was genius because he was giving people a work that was immediately accessible and by using poetry from a dead soldier from World War I, that gave it that sense of being part of the British experience, someone to whom they could deeply relate and then perhaps take away more from the work than they might have otherwise. Music historian Jane Ellen is our guest, and we'll have more. The topic, peace themes and classical music on Peace Talks Radio. Back with more after this. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Visit us online at peacetalksradio.com to see photos, read partial transcripts, and of course to hear again this and other episodes in our series. I'm Paul Ingalls with composer, performer, and music historian Jane Ellen, whose own work you can explore at janeellen.com. We asked Jane to explore the world of classical music for some stories about composers' reaction to war and peace as expressed in their work. I found an interesting thread as I began to move through these pieces. Of course, our first composer, Beethoven, didn't actually serve any time in the armed forces. But then we moved to Rayfawn Williams, who volunteered to serve in World War I. And then we had Benjamin Britten, who had to appeal his status as conscientious objector, but finally received it. And then we moved to yet another British composer, Michael Tippett, who would serve jail time for his stand on pacifism during World War II. He had lifelong humanitarian and pacifist beliefs which were simply unshakable, and it led him to make a personal statement during 1943 saying that no artist should ever be conscripted or forced to serve any sort of military time. Hmm. Part of this was as a way of of declaring his status as a conscientious objector. He was 38 years old at the time and really not due to be called up for military service. But to accept that official statement, he would have had to give up his current teaching job as well as, as have other things taken away from him by taking this lower status as a conscientious objector. Friends of his encouraged him not to do this, that it was silly, it was senseless, he was too old to serve anyway. But he insisted on making the statement, and because of this, he was actually thrown into jail and served three months. Tippett was also the first openly gay composer, so he was uh, very much a controversial figure, both socially and musically. He would push the boundaries a bit further when he decided to 
write an oratorio in which he would musically make his statements about the need for peace by using African-American spirituals in the context of 20th century classical music being written by an Englishman. The piece he chose to write, he would title A Child of Our Time, and it was influenced by actual political events. A Polish teenager who was only 17 years old had been sent to Paris by his Jewish family in 1938, hoping to keep him safe. When he found that his family had been deported by the Nazis to Poland, fearing for their safety and in anger over the entire situation, this teenager shot a German diplomat. All of this set in motion a terrible event called Kristallnacht, in which Nazis tore apart Jewish shops and the homes of Jews in protest for the murder of one of their own. Mm -hmm. Not many people recognized that this refugee teenager was actually the child of our time about whom Tippett was going to write. So from A Child of Our Time, what would you like us to hear? I can't resist choosing one of the spirituals that he used in the piece. Although the work would be a critical and commercial success, there were people who felt that jazz and spiritual elements had no place in a work of this type. I've chosen one from the second movement, which should be familiar to most listeners, called Nobody Knows the Trouble I See. And again, the London Symphony Orchestra performs under the direction of Richard Hickox. We probably shouldn't forget the teenager that inspired this great work, which was the first major work for Michael Tippett and remains his most popular to this day. Herschel Grinspan, of course, was arrested by the Nazis. His fate is unknown. He merely disappeared within the context of the war. His family, however, managed to escape from Poland into the Soviet Union and eventually moved to Israel. When A Child of Our Time was first premiered in the country of Israel, his father was in the audience. Mm, my. Wow. Moving forward in time, we move to the 1960s and uh, a piece that uh, you tell me is not originally intended to be a response to the Vietnam War, but uh, be became one over time. Tell me about this. What's interesting about the composer George Crumb is that he tended to write works which would often be taken in different ways 
from his original intention. <laughs> um, he was commissioned to write a string quartet by the Stanley Quartet, which was at the time in residence at the University of Michigan. And already being rather an eccentric composer, his, his manuscript scores are phenomenal. They're like pieces of artwork rather than printed scores. He had decided he wanted to reinvent the string quartet and he wanted to mix it with electronics and percussion, and he wasn't exactly sure what sort of piece he wanted to write. What year was this work composed? He began writing it in the late 60s. I believe the commission was actually in 68. George Crumb later said that he was deep in the compositional process before he found out that people were already assuming that it had something to do with the Vietnam War. He'd only been vaguely aware that there might be something in the piece which would cause people to react in that way. In an interview he gave, he said, my thinking was good versus evil. The devil's music is for the violin, and the cello is for the voice of God. How do violinists feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) That probably goes way back to people like Paganini, who were, it was rumored that they had sold their soul to the devil to be able to play so well. In fact, John Philip Sousa wrote a Victorian novel called The Fifth String, in which a violinist sells his soul, and the result is he's given this magic mm-hmm. violin with five strings. Well, that's the devil went down to Georgia with the Charlie Daniels band as well. Yes, it is. <laughs> you can't get away from it. If you're a great violinist, obviously you've sold out something. <laughs> they say this about great guitarists as well, but, uh, but I digress. <laughs> well, from Robert Johnson to Eric Clapton. Anyway, so, uh, and of course, maybe just planting my consciousness in 1968 has me making these associations. By the time the idea was suggested to him, um, Crumb began to realize there was something that was evocative of the period. And at that point, he actually put a subtitle on the piece calling it Music in Time of War. In everyone's mind, it will always be that string quartet about the Vietnam War, even though it didn't start that way. It's strikingly harsh and painful music. It can be almost described as frightening music. And in fact, it's all of these qualities that will lead this piece to inspire someone else to form a music group that is, in my opinion, a tremendous driving force for not only international music, but for peace via music in particular. Well, let's listen to the piece and tell that story afterwards. Okay. Opening of the first movement, Crumb, Black Angels.
Composed in 1968 and first performed in 1970, George Crumb, Black Angels, first movement, performed by? The Kronos Quartet. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Well, in 1973, a young violinist by the name of David Harrington happened to hear Black Angels, in his words, by accident. I'm not sure how he managed to accidentally hear it, but he would later say that he encouraged everyone, if they had the opportunity, to not only hear it, but late at night, really loud. Um, For him, it was a frightening work, but he also found it wild and beautiful, and it made him want to have a group of his own that could play this sort of music. Unfortunately, he knew that this would have to be a full-time job, that a part-time string quartet couldn't put in the amount of practice necessary to be able to perform new and exciting modern works. And so he set out to form what would become the Kronos Quartet. You said you associate the Kronos Quartet with uh, music about peace. How so? By the time they celebrated their 25th anniversary in 1999, they had a repertoire at that time of 600 works. But 400 of those works are string quartets written specifically for them, most of them commissioned by the Kronos. And they're from composers all over the world, Asian composers, African composers, Middle Eastern composers. And they play all of these pieces regularly on their concerts. They're managing to provide new contemporary world music to an international audience around the world and show that classical music isn't just about dead white European males, but about people who are alive today and flourishing in countries that some audiences may feel uncomfortable about interacting with. You believe that commitment is in itself an act of peacemaking? Yes, I I believe it is. Mm -hmm. Our last piece, uh, Jane Ellen has uh, selected The Armed Man, A Mass for Peace. Tell us about the composer. Carl Jenkins is a Welsh composer, and unless you're familiar with the set of recordings under the title of Adiemus, his name may not be immediately recognizable, and yet he is one of the foremost composers of the 20th and now the 21st century. He's been involved in an eclectic mix of music, but with the armed man, a mass for peace, he's returned from his faux world music, if you will, into a solid orchestral and choral world. He received a commission to write this mass for the millennium, the turning of the thousand years. At this time, he again was given free reign as to how he should write it, but they did request that he write something that dealt with peace and hopefully now a new millennium of peace. We haven't seen any evidence of that yet, but that's certainly what he set out to write. To write the Mass, he went back to a famous medieval tune called L'Homme Armé, or The Armed Man. 
the tune was so popular in the late Middle Ages that literally dozens, if not perhaps over a hundred different masses, were written using this particular song as the theme behind the liturgical music. This was a common practice. It was often done so that the common man who didn't understand Latin would at least have some idea of the music and find something to which they could relate. Something familiar, yeah. Exactly. By going back to this original tune, he used it as a bookmark. He would begin his Mass with the tune, but then end the Mass with the tune totally transformed in a completely different way. But it took a while to get there. He would use texts by Rudyard Kipling. He would use the Muslim call to prayer, perhaps the first time we've ever had that used in a work of this sort. And in the middle of the piece, he would use a poem by a Japanese poet who had survived Hiroshima, but in the 50s was dying of leukemia due to radiation poisoning. So you have a work that's overall mixing different languages, different time periods, different ethnicities, ending up in this great cry for peace. I thought it would be fun simply to listen to the bookending fragments rather than trying to get into the middle of the piece. He sets the medieval tune in the beginning to footsteps. It's as if footsteps are marching off in the distance, and then a piccolo comes in emulating a medieval flute playing the tune. Eventually, the singers sing the original medieval French words. At the end of the work, he's taken this, but he's put new words to it. Instead of singing about the armed man, the choir is now singing, better than war is peace and it's turned into a dance number. No longer do we have the sense of the medieval call to war, but we have a sense of medieval rejoicing, a a dance in honor of peace instead of something celebrating war. Well, we'll listen to the opening and the conclusion of The Armed Man, a masterpiece. London Philharmonic, Carl Jenkins, conducting as well.
Excerpts from both the opening and conclusion to The Armed Man, A Mass for Peace, composed and conducted by Carl Jenkins with the London Philharmonic. The piece was composed in the year 2000. This particular recording was interestingly released September 10th, 2001. When Jane and I discovered that, we both took a little shudder, didn't we? <laughs> I think. Well, to think that this came out the day before 9 yeah. 11 is startling to say the least right jane ellen i want to thank you so much for the research and your commentary for this special hour of music on peace talks radio it was my pleasure paul thank you so much for having me you can find more information about today's program at peacetalksradio.com that's peacetalksradio.com where you can also hear all the programs in our series going back to 2003 you can order cds of most episodes sign up for a podcast or our monthly newsletter and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit media organization that produces this program independently from your local public radio station. Please consider a donation at peacetalksradio.com. For more frequent updates and inspiration, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Additional support comes from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the FNS Fund of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.